Welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy down here, Vlad. We are on episode 39, and we are very pleased to welcome John Detellum uh, of Siemens and of a little bit of everywhere, as you guys will uh, will soon hear when we talk about his background to the show. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much, Dave, and Vlad for including me in one of these episodes. I really appreciate the opportunity. No, I, I think we're going to learn quite a bit from you, John. You've got a wealth of information and knowledge over the couple of decades that you've spent in uh, automation. I don't want to spoil, I guess, the transitions. So I would like for you maybe to start us off with how did you get into manufacturing? What, uh, you know, what degree did you get or what path did you take to get started in automation? Sure. Um, grew up in Iowa and I uh, started um, at a uh, supporting myself through college. So that was a little bit more of a struggle um, working and uh, putting my first few, couple of years through. So I did get a AS degree and then I transferred to the university. Um, but then I realized I needed a better paying job and I wanted to know what it was to be an engineer. I didn't like the book stuff that I was getting. Uh, so I went to what's known as the intern office or the co-op office. And I scored um, an opportunity in uh, Dwight, Illinois, to be in a manufacturing plant. Uh, that was uh, my first experience to that manufacturing plant facility. Um, so I was the uh, the little new intern co-op was the program. So the objective was a rotating uh, every other semester, come in and uh, be embedded in the plant. But yeah, my first experience, I landed on a new machine or a retrofitted machine, a machine that was mechanically um, retrofitted, it was basically dated back to the 50s, a lot of mechanical uh, gearing and stuff, but they, they put on a PLC-5 and a bunch of local remote I.O. and wired everything in there and tried to increase the performance of it. And it was one of those situations where corporate engineering came in and did the project, um, hit the run button, got their, uh, their run rate out of it and returned. And then the manufacturing engineering and maintenance and the production department faced the struggles. Um, so as a new intern, I was landed on the line, take notes, gather information. And the coolest thing is I learned how to get into the PLC and start doing DOS-based programming. If you can date yourself back to when we had DOS-based solutions. Um, and I mean, at the time, it was cutting edge, right? Like PLC-5 was just uh, being like deployed. You know, for those who are listening, it might not ha might not get the reference that was the like one of the biggest like revolutions i guess in terms of controls at the time yes yeah absolutely i mean legitimately that that three months four months five months that i was there for that semester i saw the plc go from series a revision a all the way to revision m we just kept updating the firmware chips as i identified problems that were with the plc or issues with the plc maintaining it in run mode um, but then there was also the whole frustration of the program not necessarily being right. And it was an enlightening experience for me because I really got switched on to what it was to be in industrial automation and to and to um, understand what it means to be an automation engineer and, and embrace the technology. Um, I recognized right away the significance of a PLC over the relay, relay control. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like you said, um, there was a lot of pushback. There was concerns with the stability of the PLC, the performance of the PLC, um, the acceptance of that as a control system over what they were tr traditionally familiar with. It was a black box um, type thing. Uh, but I learned so much in that in that first semester, in those first three years regarding, 
you know, what excites me, what motivates me and what I find interesting. Um, one of the significant things that I think all of us should recognize is the, the importance of um, empowering the production people and the maintenance people to feel like they're, they're a part of the team and that we're doing some things to try to ensure that they have the capabilities to run the line and be successful or support and maintain the line and be, and be um, uh, successful and be able to get it up and running. Yeah, and I think, you know, you said this in a conversation we had off the stream, but ultimately those people are also looking to do their best job and they're also invested to maybe a different degree, but to getting the product out the door, right? They're also trying to figure out the better way to, again, reduce downtime, improve production, reduce costs. So I think giving them that ability through automation, which they may not necessarily themselves understand very well is extremely important right as an automation engineer you're kind of uh i want to say like they're your customer in a sense because they're going to be using that equipment absolutely yep 100 they're your customer and you got to treat them that way because they can make it successful or they can make it not successful and i found that in that first semester and working in that team in the plant that you you've got to get buy-in from them uh that that this is something that's going to benefit them um, and that they are willing to help support you. Um, one of the other things I've learned over time is when they're there to support you, um, the problems that do come and they will come, don't get the visibility because you got these guys on your side that cover and protect your back um, yeah. because you're part of the team. They're part of the team. They're going to help you get through the bad stuff. Because we always have bad stuff. Yeah, no, I, I share absolutely the same experience, John. I, I think that aspect of manufacturing and automation has not changed in, in the years. But uh, where did you, how, I guess, where did you end up after that uh, internship? I, I assume you worked at that company for a little bit and then decided to do something yeah. else? Yeah, so I was I was extremely enthralled with the Alan Bradley um, PLC mm -hmm. line and programming and getting in the PLC. Um, so uh, I worked through the, the contacts and the resources that knew me at the plant um, through Alan Bradley, and I really pushed hard to get part of that uh, new hire uh, for graduation. So as a, as a graduate, I was really seeking Alan Bradley, um, but I wasn't part of their normal rounds of colleges and universities where they recruit. Um, so I wasn't on their radar. And uh, but I, I was I was told to be aggressive, so I FedExed my resume several times, and I, I even had a uh, yeah. And uh, it got to the point where the HR manager told me she she just decided to ask if the other engineers thought it would be worthwhile to bring me in there because of the fact that compared to the rest of the university students, I actually had some experience. Um, so that was 30 years ago. Uh, I don't want to date myself over 30, but um, 30 years ago, uh, fundamentally, I was graduating from the University of Iowa with an offer to go start in January at the uh, Allen Bradley offices in uh, Detroit, Michigan. And that's well, actually I, guess I started, like... started ahead, in ahead. a training program for six months, like you guys. So I started in a training program in Cleveland for about six months to actually get trained deeper. And that's a very interesting like perspective. Perhaps we can talk about that, you know, a little bit down the road. But some of the companies have recognized that offering, you know, the six months training that's going to be very hands on. I assume you were kind of like 
I guess, mentored by a an older engineer that knew the field for like, again, for a number of years and kind of explains to you the rope, so to speak, is very important. So I think, you know, it's, um, I guess, a good conversation to have about what companies should be doing in order to bring up, uh, I would say, like green automation engineers up to speed, because I don't know how your program was at the time, but I, I always say this on stream, I've never had automation training in my degree right like this is something that was yeah. kind of taught to me afterwards so i think you know maybe there's a certain disconnect between the electrical engineering degree and uh manufacturing automation per se but no not to take away you know from from your story um how was uh how was the experience at rockwell and uh if you could i guess bring us up to speed to today uh what you're what you're up to these days yeah absolutely i i i i will uh, say that you're right. When it comes looking back to my time at the first manufacturing co-op, the, the one thing that I really appreciate is the, the manufacturing mechanical engineer that I worked with very closely and the electrical engineers that taught me some perspectives. And then of course, the fact that Rockwell had that training program to run us through it. And then it one thing that I really mentored once I did get to Detroit, um, six years that I worked I was with embedded in uh, automotive. I, uh, I basically got assigned to automotive projects out of Detroit, worked on it with a team of technical su support folks. Um, the cool part is at one point, the previous manufacturer contracted walk will have me come back and do one more line, um, which was kind of exciting to get pulled back into that. Um, but yeah, in Detroit, in the automotive stuff, there was so much stuff going on with uh, multiple OEMs delivering to um, a new plant or for a new uh, product line, a new uh, vehicle. Uh, the Dodge truck was one of them. The Chrysler minivan was the second one. But I was um, I was basically out there in the field managing the multiple OEMs and trying to ensure uh, some uh, compliance to some standards, some standard wiring concepts, installation uh, guidelines that we provided as a standard for the end user perspective so that all the OEMs delivered the same solution. And then the other key was just divide, uh, defining some diagnostic uh uh, 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 standards so that the upper level systems could connect to every machine uh, for factory information systems or um, automated uh, vehicle identification systems and other uh, solutions. So we were kind of just the, 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 liaison, the liaison between the end user and the OEMs trying to ensure some consistency so that when lines came into the plant, um, they all had a similar uh, template and ensure easy of integration into the plant because there was multiple lines coming in these plants. And uh, I did uh, two years in Detroit and two years in St. Louis. And then that's when I got the opportunity to roll into a, a, a European manufacturer that was in South Carolina. And uh, the challenge there was that uh, it was traditionally um, German automation in that manufacturing facility mm -hmm. um, uh, coming into South Carolina. So the objective there was to travel overseas to Germany and sit down with uh, German OEMs and try to convince them to use the concepts of um, the PLC-5 and the Allen Bradley solutions that existed there. So I did two um, projects implementing uh, automotive standards for those uh those guys out of europe and did two startups in south carolina 
I, I want to, I guess, like expand a, f a few points that you mentioned. So first of all, uh, like again, to put perspective for someone who's maybe not familiar with the automotive industry or listening, you know, from abroad, uh, Detroit is essentially the hub, or I would say right right now used to be the hub, but for automotive manufacturing and a lot of innovation happened uh, in the 90s and 2000s, especially, right? So just to kind of put that, maybe it's the Wall Street for finance as like Detroit is for automotive manufacturing. Uh, so in case, you know, you, you need a frame of reference, but also for the OEM that you're mentioning, out of Germany, maybe to paint a more explicit picture, a lot of times OEMs standardize on a certain piece of equipment and in the automation space, they would be reluctant in using anything that they're not familiar with, right? For several reasons, but I, I think for the most part, it's uh, just the uncertainty slash the learning curve and perhaps maybe again, some cultural like approaches, some cultures would be a lot more cautious on you know saying well like we can use this equipment because we've used some other brand before so that they would be essentially pushing back and that's why they had to bring you in to ensure that that process uh, was correct if uh, if i understand right yeah absolutely correct yeah yeah they there there it was a big change i mean fundamentally the plant in south carolina was trying to um uh use uh familiar automation that they knew their workers were going to be familiar with and hence the Allen Bradley solution. Um, it was a big battle with uh, uh, the manufacturer in, in Germany when they thought about their global standards and solution. Um, but because it was a, a one-off plant, they agreed that that would be a, a, a trial. And um, in the, in the, in the primary um, major difference was that we had to have a, a more completely developed standard of, blocks that represented control for a, a valve or a light curtain or a robot that the the programmer put together and diagnostics were automatically generated um and the solutions were already kind of done so that there was less variation from one oem or one programmer to another uh, that was kind of more of the the tighter uh standards that were done in uh and accepted for those kinds of manufacturers out of the us uh, so that's what we had to spend. It was a big investment that we, we spent a lot of time. I had a huge team of uh, programmers and uh, guys that helped do the drives, the servos, the HMIs, the networking and that kind of stuff. Um, but it was it was exciting. I learned a lot. I got a lot of perspective. Uh, again, when I when I started on the project embedded in uh, in Germany, um, the interesting perspective was uh, the guys in German were vocalizing the fact that they weren't really bought into their success doing Alan Bradley for this project. Um, but I sat down with the programmers and I kind of walked through the standard that we had developed that we felt matched what they were used to in the Siemens world with the blocks and tying them together in a sequence. Mm -hmm. And we got by it. The programmers started to, to speak up and say, hey, we think we can do this. We, we believe that uh, we could program these machines and cycle them. Uh, so we went through the process of doing that. And, and the unfortunate thing with, uh, at the time, the solution that we were using with Alan Bradley is we, we did one project with one platform, um, PLC-5s and panel view enhanced or whatever. Um, and then other equipment came in with a different flavor, SLC-500s and uh, panel view 500s, PV-500s yep. or something smaller. 
um, which meant it, a, a huge cost to develop the standard to fit on that other platform. So it was very frustrating. Um, we had PILT safety PLCs, we had Interbus SIO, um, we had third-party drives, SCW drives. So it was a hodgepodge of you know things. The only thing that really stayed consistent was the, the Allen Bradley old PLC. Um, and then uh, the next project that we rolled into, the PLC five wasn't going to do it. We migrated to Control Logics. Um, so oh, really, so you bypassed the the SLC five hundred fives. Interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. We went straight to Control Logics. There were some demands from uh, those guys that they wanted to see something that was the future. Um, but that meant we had to redevelop the standard and. The second project was another huge investment starting from kind of scratch again. Um, and, that, and that's when I started to look back at the things that I've been doing as an automation engineer from, you know, pulling from different uh, uh, engineering tool sets to do different product flat, product flat platforms, um, different networking tools, whether, you know, it might have been a, 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 a device net or a control net or an Interbus S, uh, the safety PLC. And my, my frustration and my realization is I don't want to use all these different tools. I, 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 I want to standardize so that I can scale. And once I do have a standard, it lives for the future. I want to reduce um, the complexity of my architecture um, so that it's a tighter um, archi architecture. And the cool thing is a lot of the German um, engineers and uh, OEMs took me under and took me to where the Siemens stuff is and started to show me some of the significant things that they um, were bought into, why they select Siemens for the solutions that they do. So I started to see a little bit of the light or see a little bit of more of the vision of how um, Siemens has brought product to market over time versus what my experience was with um, the previous uh employer and like I, I think the one thing that you said i i try to explain that is that um i feel like some of the alan bradley stuff evolved in environments like detroit uh focused on relay to ladder logic whereas a lot of the auto, uh, siemens automation evolved from that equipment manufacturer that really uh uh engineer that wants to program it uh really lean and tight and um efficient and that's how the two of them kind of evolved over time. Um, but now we're at the point where, you know, the usability's gotten better on uh, the uh, TIA, the Totally Integrated Automation. Uh, so you have the ease of use and you still have that uh, function block programming and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, in my career, I got a chance to kind of be it all. And then that's when I made the transition, basically 2005 to 2007. Um, it was a slow transition took two years, um, did a couple other things, but I, I basically knew that um, I wanted to do something different after 15 years, 13 years with Rockwell. Um, and I was also more interested in being in South Carolina than going back to the automotive team in Detroit, of course. Um, and then uh, a couple opportunities came up. I did some contracting on my own back to Rockwell and did some project work. And then uh, I was recruited by a Siemens distributor um, a former colleague that knew of what my skill sets were, had confidence that I could basically come on board as the Siemens automation specialist for the distributor. And I started on that. Um, so I did that in uh, part of that time period. And then fortunately, 
you know, how things play out. Rocco recruited me back. And when I resigned from the distributor, him and my, uh, some of the other colleagues that I worked with there um, said, give us a few days. We'll find an opportunity with you to stay with Siemens. And that's how I got started with Siemens. Let me ask you, uh, I guess, an interesting question, which I think a lot of uh, engineers will relate to, but transitioning, you know, from Rockwell to Siemens, what was that experience like? And I guess with the maybe caveat, the tools and probably the documentation was not the same as today, but could you still maybe paint us a picture if it was like seamless, if it required maybe if there were differences, if it uh, like how long did it take? What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I like the way you phrased it so that um, I could think about it. I wasn't one that um, read documentation. I was one that opened up the software and did things. Um, and I kind of got dropped into situations through the distributor to go there and troubleshoot. And some of the things I discovered right away was just the uh, online maintain maintainability. And I think it was my mindset. I opened up Somatic Manager. I opened up the project, I went online, I could see green and reds and oranges. And I started to say, hey, there's some interesting diagnostics that are coming out of the hardware. There's some interesting diagnostics that are coming on the screen. The other thing I found was right mouse click, um, go to the problem where the IO is, see if something pops up. And, I, and I, I found the usability of the Somatic Manager and the Step 7 tool to monitor and troubleshoot the PLC. I grasped, I was able to grasp it pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And then the concept of the HMI tie into the, the data blocks to get um, the information from it, it all kind of just resonated with me. And I was like, I get it. Um, the fact that system diagnostics were automatically being generated by the architecture definition and being animated, um, I found that more exciting. The fact that there was a little bit more done for me in the system so that I felt confident that I could embrace it. Um, and the other thing was just the fact that it was tighter in one project file, PLC, networking, HMI. Um, again, it, in my experience, I was responsible for pulling together the, uh, the Rockwell programs, multiple ones from different engineering tool sets, the HMIs, the PILTS program, the SEW solution, the networking on Interbus. And there was these pieces of paper I had to use to map uh, addresses or nodes to addresses to figure out what's going on there. Okay. I wanted something where I opened up the software and I got started. So the, the other thing that I learned when I was at the distributor, because I didn't know where I was going to go after the distributor, is I spent a lot more time discussing the highlights of why they're different and not um, necessarily getting into my perspective or opinion, what's better or worse. Just, you know, articulating to the customer that was evaluating, because most of us have both um, in our plans. And I think it's best if most of us embrace understanding both and have the capabilities of getting on there. So I, I enjoyed more uh, having a dialogue where you could talk about the things that you, you're familiar with and the things that um, make sense for uh, maintainability and long-term. For me, long-term because I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, I know a lot of other plants that have equipment that run for more than 30 years, right? Yeah. And and so I guess after that uh, experience with the distributor, you made the decision, I guess there's, 
a couple of points i'll let you expand on that but uh, you made the decision ultimately to join uh siemens so i i, I would be wondering what that uh, path was like in what capacity i guess first of all did you join and then how was that progression like yeah um so fortunately i joined the hmi team jay coglin one of the top um teams to join back in uh, the time uh, but yeah, fortunately I joined the HMI team and HMI was an easy topic to kind of learn. What was cool about the HMI at that time is it had a lot of um, uh, functionality that other HMIs didn't have, such as screen and screen and um, tag sharing. Uh, so I had a, a demo kit that I could pull the three of them together. Um, so the first few years I traveled the region, just you know talking HMIs, HMIs could talk to any PLC, they had drivers for the uh, Alan Bradley PLCs, uh, HMIs aren't so uh, passionate with engineers that are so hard struck on, I got to have this flavor of PLC. Um, they have a lot more struggles with the HMIs in those, those environments. So it was a good starting place and the team was phenomenal to start with. Uh, really learned a lot again, um, how to uh, work inside Siemens. The cool part is um, I really got excited about their next generation of what software would be. So um, they had the somatic manager with the classic step seven that was not as user-friendly as what um, US Canadian, Canadian people were used to. And some people started to show me the uh, proof of concept, the pilot, the beta stuff that was planned for 2010 release. Um, so uh, we rolled into uh, different business development roles and uh, things in the region. And I happened to get word that the uh, headquarters guys in Germany were looking for a usability management uh, guy to help release or uh, after it was released to make future adjustments. So I rolled over to Germany on a delegation to work with the Germans, uh, the development guys to see the light when it came to usability. Just kidding. Um, to help, uh, <laughs> just to help provide a perspective of a user um, that is used to other tool sets. Uh, what was that so, experience like? I guess I'm very curious if you can expand on that a little bit. I guess going to Germany and like be an advisor. To okay. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. Uh, first of all, uh, many of the many of the Germans appreciated the perspective. Um, they really do appreciate the perspective because we all get um, blinders on to our solution. And sometimes it's helpful if we include something in our team that helps drive our perspective beyond what we're used to. Um, and that's one of the things I learned in, in, in some of the, the discussions and meetings with some of the Germans is their perspective on what things were done on a manufacturing floor or with the automation tool set didn't necessarily line up with what traditionally we did in the manufacturing floor. Hmm. Um, things such as forcing and modifying data blocks and um, some of the other things. Uh, but on the other hand, some of the other things I recognized was there's there's they do things a lot more thoroughly and logical. I, I, if you ever heard a German say not logic, uh, Nick logic or whatever. Um, some of the things like monitoring the blocks uh, if you do a monitoring of a block inside the Siemens world, it's live, it's real. It's what is being run at that instance versus uh, just an update of the tags from the software. Um, the watch table, it's you know meticulously organized 
to provide um, a, a, a poke to the data at the beginning of the scan or at the end of the scan or, or redo it. Um, so I saw a lot of things and the safety integrated, the things that they did with the hardware. Um, so I learned a lot about the significance of what they really do uh, do to ensure that the things are done right. And then um, what we got to do is help just drive the simplicity of the usability to ensure that um, it was easy to use without needing to, to reference a manual or a step-by-step. -step. Um, but it was a great experience. I did about three years. I was on my fourth year when other opportunities came up. And so that's, you came back to the, to the U.S.? No, I actually got referred to by other colleagues um, to go to Australia. So I can hear my Australian accent a little bit and my dialect. Um, I picked up a little bit of uh, their, their slang. Um, no, so the uh, Australian market was looking to get a new PLC pro product manager for the launch of the 1500 in 2014. And uh, uh, they reached into the U.S. and asked for some referrals. And um, my name got thrown out there that I was at the end of a delegation in Germany. I potentially would be interested. So, yeah, I did three years in Germany and then rolled off to Australia to roam around in the outback with a bunch of hardware kids and um, try to uh, promote and drive the awareness of the new stuff. Interesting. And then uh, what was that market like, if, if you don't mind me asking? Because uh, I guess I'm familiar with North America, Europe, but... Uh... Australia, is that any different? Are you did you see like different things? Is that a mix of various platforms? It, you... Yeah, it's a mix. Um, it's a mix of different vendors. Um, it's very spread out. Um, very very spread out. Um, a long distance. Um, there's a lot of um dairy and beverage, food and beverage and stuff like that. Um. Uh, and uh, but it, it's hard to get. It's four to six hours to get to a site, so you need a lot more. Uh, regional folks to support it uh, but it was fun it was a great experience Tasmania New Zealand they were all part of our region so um, I got to work with all the guys there and um, basically try new things to try and bring in the new product but after five years I found an opportunity here to come back as the TI portal guy 2016 or 17 and I came back and I've been part of this uh, digitalization digital journey um, solution the future with the uh, team here in uh, in Georgia for the last four years. So it's been a great little tour of duty around the world, around the different vendors and products and solutions. It, it's uh, I guess like on a slight side uh, side note, it's awesome to hear that you know automation often provides those opportunities, unlike many other I feel like electrical or just general engineering professions i think like if you find the right opportunities then you can again like build your career if you want to travel somewhere else like it's uh i think like that's a huge uh, advantage for sure but yeah. no dave do you want to uh, follow up on anything i, I think it's uh long yeah so uh, but 
I mean, it, it is a long introduction, but the, as John was describing his background, you know, looking at the theme, emerging technologies, I realized that John's entire career has been emerging technologies from, from Relay Logic to the PLC5s to the, through the slicks and the controllers that we're now using through Siemens and kind of the build of the entirety of what we now know as TIA Portal. I think that that's amazing. Um before we talk about some emerging technologies that you're excited with, John, do you have any like sage words of wisdom uh, of, of maybe things that you've realized through the years when you look at new technologies and decide which directions to go in? Yeah, I, I think fortunately for me, my, my persona, my, my attitude is I embraced it. I wanted to learn it. I wanted to see what it was do, what it was capable of. Give me a trial. Let me play with it. Um, the other thing is a lot of people take a naysaying attitude against it, the PLC, the safety integrated, the ethernet on the network floor, um, the wireless safety technology, Ooh. right? Uh, Very button topic right topic. there. Yes. Yeah. A button topic. Yeah. Uh, in, in all my career, what I've seen over and over again is people say, no, not going to happen. Not, it's not going to work. Um, HMIs, they, you know, when we did it, we had to put it next to the control panel because the operator was not going to be able to turn pages um, versus seeing all the push buttons on the, on the cabinet. Um, honestly, it all evolves to be, um, first of all, the innovations and the technology evolved to be stable, secure, and highly functional, um, safety integrated. It, I, I saw relay panels fail. I saw the relay be taken out of the cabinet and the safety was still running. Um, and, and to me, my argument is, or my, my, my recommendation to people is re recognize that these emerging technologies are going to evolve and they are going to be part of the playing field. And the sooner you get on board with it and figure out how it integrates into your, into your, uh, your team, or your facility or your machines is important because otherwise you're gonna lag behind the rest of them. Uh, you don't wanna still be doing relay ladder logic when the rest of us are on um, fourth generation PLCs. So absolutely, the, the one thing I say is um, recognize that the technology will evolve and find a way to embrace it and understand it and learn it and um, build it in. It's worth the investment. I, I like that, John. And so in, in the beginning of your career, some of the first plants you were talking about, you were going and installing, you know, PLC5s, which Correct. many of them are, are probably still running, but we're yeah. probably looking at the, we, we are forced to upgrade in the very near future because there are literally no parts left, um, long since obsolete. Would you suggest that the people look to get as far ahead in the next generation of controllers as they possibly can? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I would definitely find a way to, mm -hmm. to do that. Like you said, um, the, one of the systems, are they're still running. And it's kind of amazing when you look at, even while I was doing the retrofits, to look back and know that some of these control panels were from the 1930s and still running the parts of the plant. It was amazing. Um, but, you know, 
you still have to be um, slow to adopt it into production because you don't want to take a risk um, that you're struggling with um, being able to evolve with that solution. So I think there's places where um, you're going to have to play a little bit safe, but you're going to look at places where you can um, embed that. I did it. I did it in one of the automotives. I was like, hey, for all the main lines, I would suggest sticking with what you're familiar with, but start to evolve on this other line that's not so critical, um, you know, the new technology as a test or a pilot bed so that you can actually ramp up your understanding of what works. Because it sure is a lot easier to um, evolve a new solution within the plant with the people that are going to run it and ensure that it's supported um, than it is to uh, wait till the last minute and blow it in there really complicated. Yeah. No. I, I like that, John. I think that, that that's a good recommendation. And so I, as we were talking before the show about some interesting emerging technologies, one of those things that I think fits in very well is edge applications, right? So edge devices and edge applications to help kind of move the technology forward. Can you talk a little bit about why you're excited about that and maybe some applications as to what you see people using it on? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so for years, like I, like I mentioned before that, you know, we, we did the PLC process, we did the HMI, and then we always tended to fund a, you know, a, a little middleware SCADA system to kind of pull together something that we needed additionally, mm -hmm. the PLC, whether it be the revision tracking of the, the part numbers or the, or the block identifications or version control, um, or quality data or production data or drive data, um, when I started to look at um, the concept of, a, of an app, similar to what we do with our, our devices um, four or five years ago and, and getting the perspective of the ability to bolt on an app that was provided by somebody that, per, that does a solution such as managing the, the, or identifying the firmware revisions, the catalog numbers of the install base and publishing that up to something. Um, to me, if it's part of an app, it's part of an ecosystem that ex exists on the bolt-on of the PLC, the HMI, the switch, or the, or the network, um, then I feel like it's something that it's easier to maintain long-term because I'm not dependent on a programmer that programmed it to his flavor and nobody else can ever support it. Um, the, the concept of an app with a functionality that that, that I can bolt onto my PLC, it pulls the data, then I'm not reprogramming it. And I believe, you know, the concept that these app developers or these app providers, um, there's a variety of different ways this is going to evolve, whether um, there's tool sets that provide the sample and anybody can develop their own personal apps or corporate apps or OEM apps, or whether um, a vendor like SEW or Siemens provides a app associated with their controllers and you link it and tie it to other apps. Um, I really believe that the concept of an edge ecosystem that, you know, supports the update, the security and the management and the subscription is going to be part of it. Um, but, and the updates of it over time, I believe that that's going to be a great add on to the automation centric system. And, and, and going into that, the other thing that I think is key is that we simplify the automation system, you know, so that mm -hmm. we're like we do with, uh, TI portal, you have one automation system for micro, distributed, advanced, complex, HMI, networking, IO, um, one simple 
user interface that's consistent that does things for me like system diagnostics and process diagnostics and that kind of stuff. And then it's simpler for me to bolt on these edge technologies onto all my systems, whether it's a simple conveyor, a tank, or it's my complex extruder that might exist in the point. I think we still have a bit of time before it uh, that vision comes to life, but I, I think we're definitely headed in that direction. I mean, I really hope that there's going to be a lot more of interconnection of technology. And I think Siemens has an initiative. Uh, what was Dave? You had mentioned it last time that we spoke uh, that allows Mindsphere. other Mindsphere. That's right. That yes. allows like other vendors to essentially come in and use some of the APIs to access again, like certain data, either to like talk to the device or, or push data into the device. And I think, uh, again, like, I think we're going to see more and more of that because I think, again, there's so many different solutions which may be applicable in certain instances, depending on the industry, depending on the maturity of the plan, for example, that will make sense. And so, as you were saying, they could be pulled as almost applications depending on uh, your specific case. But uh, I think we're heading there, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, and, and to the that cool point, you can, you, can, you can start today. That's what I think is significant. You, you could start with an edge-enabled device such as the unified panel and do a simple app and say, hey, we're, we're doing it. MindSphere. Um, again, I, I suggest to many customers, get, or I would, I would get started with it if I was in that industry, just to see what things I need to make sure that my infrastructure requires. Absolutely. And kind of to that point, um, I, I first, you know, kind of came across this five, six, seven years ago. And I wasn't as bullish as I am now on it, but looking through and the opportunity to develop, whether you're an OEM and you just want to build your apps as an app, like a MindSphere, or you want to put it as a module and just drop it into all of the same systems, I think for repeatability and ease of use reasons, there, there's the only reason not to do it is because you don't have the technical ability in-house to do it and you don't know how to go through the SDK and figure out what all of that looks like. And if you don't know how to do that, you need to go find the talent in order to help you bring that to be able to go leverage these into the future. Because for many programmers who are rewriting custom code the last 20% over and over and over for every application to John's very beginning of his career point, that, that is not sustainable in this industry because now you have every machine running custom code. If we could remove the customization of it and get all of that into a module or an app, now then that, that could be something as simple as an edge app or that could be you know entire control systems and cmms's and kind of all of those things that in my opinion is is one of the ways that we have to go in order to move this industry further we have to get away from the everyone writes custom code for everything and get to the we have solutions let's deliver these solutions and if we can solve 90 percent of it then then the extra 10 percent is is edge case and is custom code and that is what we've seen most of the rest of the software world, they've been doing it for 20 or more years. Yep. But yeah, uh, I fully agree. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. So th that's one of the reasons that uh, I've been very interested to watch kind of the movement of MindSphere. So I, I think that was the first one that kind of came into light for me and kind of following it along it, its path has been very interesting. I would say 
I, I'm happy to where it is. I think it'll grow. It was probably a little early uh, before its time. It was it was a very early emerging technology, and the very uh, of course the, the logical German engineers over in uh, in Germany knew the direction that we needed to go. Maybe before yeah. uh, maybe before we did. But uh, I want to pause this. Uh, we've got some more emerging technologies to talk about. But we we do want to thank Siemens as our sponsor. So Vlad, can you give me that awkward laugh because we still don't have a. Uh, a sponsor uh, ad read uh, sound. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, as we said, we want to thank uh, we want to thank Siemens for uh, sponsoring this theme. And as part of that, we want to talk about 25 years of totally integrated automation. Now, this may sound exactly what John was talking about because John has lived through 25 years plus of totally integrated automation. But uh, I, I think it's very interesting. So 25 years ago, Siemens established end-to-end -end communication. They integrated the engineering and data management into the factory for the first time. Today, TIA enables a smart link between the production environments of the OT side and the office environment, the IT side of manufacturing industry industrial enterprises. Siemens is working with and for our customers to drive efficiency and productivity today and in the future, as they say, 25 years of TIA and the beat goes on. Uh, so you guys can find all of that information at Siemens.com slash TIA. Um, and this week we'll share a, a couple of interesting things. So I know Vlad on Solus PLC has done some very interesting work on Siemens. I don't know how deep you guys have gotten into Siemens TIA portal, uh, but we would like to, to shout out another great member of the community. Uh, so G, uh, you may know them as Gina Brooks on LinkedIn and Outlier Automation. They've been doing a bunch of very interesting things that I've seen um, so we talked about DevOps in, in earlier themes. So how Siemens can kind of pull in and, and connect with a Git repository. They're, they're great videos. If you guys haven't seen Outlier Automation, you guys should absolutely go through and uh, and check that out. Uh, Vlad, any any thoughts with that? Well, I was going to say, I believe there's a webinar as well coming up with, uh, with Gina. Uh, I don't know if, John, if you want to share a bit more information would be more than happy to put up the link and see if people would uh, have an interest in that. What's the webinar about and when is it happening? Yeah, so tomorrow, actually, um, we're doing a test suite uh, present, a test suite overview of uh, the ability to run style guides and run um, an application to test against your TI portal project. Uh, so tomorrow at two o'clock Eastern Standard Time, we're going to um, promote our uh, or walk through a demo with outlier uh they did Very some power i just put the link in the chat for the knowledge hub where we landed your videos together with some of her videos how to kind of a just a a, a landing page to go find that uh, and then i'll i'll grab that other link and drop it in the thing for tomorrow to register for that other one the interesting thing is we're we're potentially going to offer a giveaway of the test suite um, software um, based on the, the the attendees that attend that workshop as well. Very interesting. So John is going to go ahead and drop that in the link. Uh, if you guys are watching this live, you guys can check that link out tomorrow. If not, I would imagine you guys can go and rewatch all of that through the same link as signing up for the webinar. 
John, John is giving perfect. John is giving me a yes. So that, that will be in the show notes. So if you're listening to the podcast or any other time that is not, uh, that is before uh, December 2nd in the afternoon, East coast time, uh, go ahead and click that link and you guys can watch that. And John kind of gave us a fantastic segue uh, to the first manufacturing hub giveaway. Uh, So as we mentioned uh, earlier in the intro comments, uh, we're very pleased to kind of go, help give back and give more stuff to uh, to this fantastic community uh so we have a, a trio of siemens um somatic uh software uh that we're going to go ahead and give away you guys can go check that out at manufacturinghub.live slash siemens hyphen giveaway and that link should be in the comments of all of this or in the show notes if you're listening to it either it will run for about a month we'll have firm dates uh we'll have firm dates on that i think vlad and i are going to draw it live either at the end of this year on our last show or at the beginning of next year on the first show of the year and uh so go ahead and check all of that out we will make the note that you do have to have a u.s or canadian shipping uh residents for to to get that even though we, we are delivering it uh via email so guys please go ahead and check that out vlad and i are excited about that and you guys will absolutely get more of that information um as uh, as, as the as the month of december rolls on uh vlad do you have any other thoughts on uh on that no i think uh again you covered it really well dave uh, i just want to maybe resume our conversation a little bit around uh you know emerging technologies as uh, absolutely that's the theme of the month but uh maybe again like jump into some uh further you know in a decade or several decades you know john what do you see um as you know taking over is it ai machine learning is it going to be drones in uh, in manufacturing facilities there, there's some tests going on you know you know believe it uh, believe it or not those are conversations of uh, moving materials around but uh, no what are you, what are your thoughts on what's going to be interesting yeah so as it was mentioned last week with your uh, guest last week Jeff Winter I think yeah mm-hmm. I, I do I do see AI coming in more and more like he mentioned um, inherently within the product and that kind of stuff and playing a part of the solution um but another thing that i i think that is going to matter like i mentioned before is working on, on the floor with the mechanical engineer and vetting the mechanics against the automation is um the fact that the machine design tools um for the, the cad systems and the 3d modeling that is done for the mechanical process and the timing diagrams that's laid out in those in those environments i see i believe a, a tighter connection a virtual commissioning being able to uh, vet some of the automation uh, program against some of the mechanical design ahead of time in the virtual commissioning so that you work through some of those things before you get to the point of build a machine and now let's fix the automation to the problems that we find mechanically. So I, I think that's another thing that's kind of interesting is, is the ability to kind of link those two together so that you have the representation of a digital twin of the machine together with a digital twin of um, the automation. I think that's an interesting, I guess, I'm curious to see how, well, I guess two sides, right? There's the digital twin technology and there's the simulation that becomes a lot uh, better integrated with the current tools because again, there are 
simulation software and tools that you can use right now with your PLCs and HMIs, but they're not necessarily representative maybe of the process that's running, which is very difficult to simulate because as you said, you're running a mechanical transformation or even a chemical one. So it's hard to uh, to get those like inputs as you would. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see, and I know there's a lot of work being done by different companies, right? From small to large, uh, in that space, but uh, I personally have not seen maybe a digital twin implementation yet that was perhaps uh, the good, of, like good enough of an investment to say that yes, like this has been like proven and successful. I don't know if you have any like stories or experiences that you can share around that. Yeah, if you um, if you Google it on uh, on YouTube, uh, Burr Oak out of Michigan, I I think they're pretty vocal on what they've used. Um, and then uh, there's another one out of Germany uh, that I I can get you the link, but they, they talked through, it's a pretty powerful thing on virtual commissioning. It was a packaging OEM, I can't, I can't remember the name of it, but um, they, they really talked through the concept of the fact that they got to vet their mechanical design against some of the automation before they ever built the machine. And the other thing that's key is they can try different scenarios of the design against um, hmm. the concept of, you know, will, will this work or will this work or will this give the, the production? The, the cool thing is it's another one of those things is once you do it, it evolves over time. Um, and um, some of the things that evolve out of it is a performance digital twin where you actually tie the data coming out of the real running mechanical machine mm -hmm. back to the back to the design environment so you get a, a true feedback yep. of whether it worked or not and i think that's where some of the the real value comes in and is instead of manual carrying the problems that existed on the production floor back to the mechanical design guys or the automation design guys is linking that whole cycle of tool sets so that you've you've got the complete digital model and like you said you, it's impossible to to model everything at the beginning because there's certain things that are harder to model in software the drive the mechanics the motor um, but the tool sets are really getting a lot more powerful and that's and a, that's a good point that, that's a very good point that it's going to evolve with uh, with the data that comes in right like as yep. i guess it's not a single piece of technology but it will learn um, as you're implementing solutions that will pull the data of their utilization. That goes back to even the discussion we had on standardizing across different equipment, right? Because at that point, your motor, your servo drive, your HMI, whatever that runs in one facility has a similar structure in a different one and you can automatically pull that in and then be able to predict with a higher accuracy what your, uh, let's say, digital twin or model will look like. So that's that's actually a really good, um, I guess, connection between the, the different uh, technologies. Absolutely. And uh, kind of to that uh, digital twin uh, comment, I'll, I'll shout out one company I know who's been doing a bunch of work in it. Uh, the, the company's name is uh, Simwell. I think they're based out of Quebec originally, and they've also got a location uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've had a couple of conversations with them, and it's been amazing to follow their fairly explosive growth over the last three or four years, Most almost exclusively in simulation 
and digital twin. And so it's been very interesting because before that, most of my comments were very similar to, to yours, Vlad, of I haven't seen a lot of it work. And you, you'd think it's a lot more expensive th than it actually is. It's, it is, it, it seems to be based upon a couple of price points that I've looked at much less expensive. Like it's not hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to simulate a, a facility. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do want to bring kind of John's comment back to something that seems exceptionally futuristic, but I know something that you're interested, like very interested in things that are happening like now today. And that's the, the digital threat and virtual commissioning. Um, and and uh, we're going to give it a little bit of a spoiler. We're working to get some folks on to talk about virtual commissioning and digital thread. But can you give us just a little bit of a teaser of what virtual commissioning and digital thread is uh, in a lead up for that, John. So yeah, the, to me, you know, the virtual commissioning is a definition of, you know, digital twin and simulation is, you know, a digital twin of the machine, the mechanics represented virtually running instead of just design running. A, a digital twin of the automation is instead of having the hardware on my desk, I run it in a simulation and toggle the bits. Um, but to me, virtual commissioning represents the fact I can tie those two worlds together. And where the mechanical twin is looking for an input to command it to run and run the cycle, um, it's tied and mapped to the automation twin. And then like Vlad mentioned, sometimes there's things that can't be represented in the mechanical design or the automation design, like the drive and process and some of the other things. And that's when you use another tool called Simit. Uh, and Simit has a, for example, Siemens uh, simulation tool has a whole suite of add-ons uh, for process, drives, and all these other things. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of other tools. And like you mentioned, there's a whole suite of uh, companies and uh, programmers out there that are getting involved in these things. I've seen a lot of different other digital twins of things, operators, and um, more and more things are pulled together where they're able to basically simulate the whole thing. And they're just tying the things together by open communications. You know, the the, the APIs, the OPC UA, um, whatever provides the fastest means of communication. And that's, yeah, our objective is to bring um, one of the guys on there that can really paint the bigger picture and talk about some of the real references that have been successful in doing it. But like I mentioned, you know, when I first started 30 years ago, or more, yeah, more 33 years ago, actually, 33 years ago, 1988. Um, my my success in automation was working with the mechanical guy, the mechanical guy enlightening me to what I was controlling and what I needed to understand with the mechanics and um, working together. And I think that um, we need to recognize that there's a big value in those guys working together in that in that realm. So and the digital thread is just basically the fact that I think some of the um, information that might exist in one tool is feeding the automatic generation of the other tools. Like the electrical e-plant, when you design the architecture of the part numbers of the of the devices, the name of the devices, the network structure, the inputs, the addresses, the tags, you can import that all in with Automation ML mm -hmm. into uh, from uh, from e-plan, the electrical drawing package into the uh, architecture of the automation solution. And that's not a Siemens thing. That's a uh, an open vendor. There's a whole bunch of other uh, providers that are jumping on the bandwagon with that automation ML solution. 
And, and then the other concept is just the data. Once the data flows from, um, you know, up to the cloud and feeds back, um, that's kind of the digital thread that ties everything together. I mean, it used to be sneaker net, you know, you, you'd sit there and feed back things that were going on in the plant back from my project that I launched in Warren, Michigan. I took it back to Troy, Michigan and said, hey, this is what's wrong with your, your uh, our automation solution. Fix it before you go to Sterling Heights or Dearborn or whatever. Uh, it was all dependent on uh, uh, me being interested to encourage success for the next project. Um, so I think those things are what's changing is the fact now I get the data through back through the process. Yeah, I, I love that. I think the future is now. Uh, now, and I think we should all be excited about the things that we're seeing today and in, in the next uh, five years. Uh, w with that, um, I want uh, what, what I'm calling slow rapid fire questions. Uh, so, so, John, we've got a couple of questions uh, for you as we wrap up. Um, Everyone loves our hashtag not sponsored audible uh, bit in, in which uh, I ask you for a book review and Vlad goes and purchases the is the book on his audible uh, account. Do you have a, do you have a book recommendation for us? Yeah. So in my, in all my time that I've been um, embedded in situations with um, Alan Bradley and startups and manufacturing and processes, we've all been there trying to commission a, uh, rebuild of a 1336 200 horsepower drive or commissioning the control net uh, and you know at 11 o'clock at night praying for the uh, the possibility that it's going to work when we turn on the power um, yeah. one, one of the books that I found inspiring was The Shack by Paul Young just a book that kind of touches me into an understanding inspirational type book um, so that's one I've read a couple times um kind of um, over the last couple of years. Uh, so that's one thing that I've read. Oh, no, perfect. Thank you. Uh, second question uh, for you is, you've got a vast array of knowledge. Who do you want to talk to? Uh, who can help you? Who do you want to help? You know, I, I like enlightening the folks to understanding, you know, the, the perspective of, you know, what's part of the automation solution, where it's evolved, why it's evolved. Um, I, I, you know, I love participating in just the discussions of um, what are the next steps, what technology should we embrace, how should we embrace it. Um, I think I think one of the funnest things, the most enlightening things, was a, a, a slow, careful approach in evolving over time. What makes sense um, over time? So yeah, and I'm approachable. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, generally, we connect with anybody, and you know, we're open to just have those open dialogues about. You know, what was, why um, one is more valuable than the other, what were some of the experiences, and then um, what things matter or what my perspective of it is why things matter going forward in the future. But like you said, I think the future is now and it's exciting. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Uh, thank you, John. And then last question is, do you have a piece of career advice, either for early career or, or middle career uh, people uh, within automation? First of all, in college, university, high school, get involved in an internship and get experience. Um, secondly is, you know, recognize that everybody can help you if they recognize your value um, over time. So make relationships. Everything that, you know, I've done over time has been based on people knowing who I was and what I was capable of and being able to, you know, refer me and 
um, recommend me for other opportunities and uh, push me to the next step and take advantage of the opportunities. Uh, some people, while I was making the transitions, made comments like, you know, how can you make that step? How can you make that risk or take that, that chance? Um, but the things about, you know, changing from one company to the other, taking a, a little transition in the middle. Um, I even did a point where I resigned from a company and um, took a, took the summer off. Um, it was kind of a risky situation, but it worked out really well. And then the other thing is, you know, really embrace the opportunities, like the opportunity to go overseas and experience, you know, the perspective of another culture, because the one thing that's significant is they do truly appreciate the American go get it perspective and do it and try. And the fact that we're not afraid to fail and the opportunity to discover what works. Um, so yeah, get, put yourself out there, uh, have good relationships and uh, embrace the opportunities. Because, uh, it's just a, it's a fun thing, especially right now. There's so That's many- That's great advice. That's great advice. I like- No. It is great advice. No, th thank you so much, John. Uh, thank And thank you, everyone. Um, again, everyone, this has been episode 39 of the Manufacturing Hub podcast with me, Dave, and this guy over here, Vlad. Uh, thank you, John, to tell him uh, for talking about, well, the, the last 30 plus years of emerging technologies and where we're going and how we're here. Um, if you guys want to check us out, all of our links will be uh, in the show notes uh, as well as in the video notes. Uh, please feel free to... Uh, catch us almost every Wednesday um, evening as we're streaming the show live or in podcast form. And if you're listening from one of these platforms, please feel free to give us the thumbs up and rate us five stars and reviews and connect with us on LinkedIn and all of those other things uh, until next week. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks. Thank you everyone. Bye -bye. Thank you, John. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Ciao.